1: Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 144. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Viborg Thun. Spring is upon us here in the West, and I adore seeing life once again coming forth and the sun once again having some warmth in its rays. But, although our hemisphere once again tilts towards the sun, I shall not leave my dear listeners hanging, waiting for details from the abyss. And tonight's episode, the first in a multi-episode series, will truly bring to light events of almost unspeakable depravity and evil. If you, dear listener, are like me and love history and documentaries, you have probably seen and listened to hundreds of documentaries detailing the Second World War. In many ways, WW2 was an Armageddon of sorts, a bloodbath unheard of in mankind's many millennia old history. And most of us are familiar with its main acts. Perhaps you've seen excellent TV productions, such as Band of Brothers and The Pacific, detailing the theater of war in Europe and The Pacific. And of course, most of us are familiar with the extreme horror of the Holocaust. But I doubt most of you are familiar with a serial killer case taking place under the cover of war a serial killer case that, had it occurred in peacetime, it would probably be just as famous as that of Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. I am, of course, talking about none other than the real-life Dr. Hannibal Lecter. This killer had many nicknames. The Vampire of the Rue L'Azur. The New Bluebeard. The Second Landru. His full name was Dr. Marcel-André-Henri-Félix-Pétillon, and he viciously murdered at least 27 innocent men and women before he was stopped. This is his saga. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. This club includes 29 dignified members, of exquisite taste. And their names are Anne, Anthony, Brenda, Brian, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Corbin, Ella, Fawn, James, Jennifer, Juliet, Caitlin, Kathy, Kylie, Libby, Lisa, Lisbeth, Madeline, Mickey, Monica, Russell, Sabina, Skortnia, Shauna, Val, and Zasha. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. As mentioned in the last episode, going forward all TSK episodes will be available one hundred percent ad free to my TSK Producers Club on Patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles, I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate fifteen dollars a month, that's only seven fifty per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Marcel-André-Henri-Félix Pétillon was born at 3 a.m. on the 17th of January, 1897. He was the son of Félix-Irène Moustiol Pétillon, a Post and Telegraph employee, age 30, and his wife, Martha-Marie Constance-Josephine Bourdon, age 22. They lived at 100 Rue de Paris-en-Auxerre, an ancient town of about 30,000 inhabitants located 161 kilometres south of Paris in the rural Burgundian department of Yonne. The locals in the town have a wealth of extravagant stories about Petillon's youth, some of them true some doubtless invented as suitable for a future killer. People assured authorities that he developed a cruel streak at an early age. One day, when he was five, while he was sitting on the kitchen floor snipping his nursemaid's tape measure into individual centimetres and storing the numbers in a matchbox, the neighbor's grey kitten strayed in. He grew fond of the cat, and threw fits and almost crushed it in his embrace if anyone tried to take it from him. But despite his affection, one day the nursemaid found Marcel standing beside a tub of boiling water. She had prepared for her laundry. He was dipping the kitten's hind paws in the water and beaming rapturously as it howled with pain that night the maid let him take the cat to bed she thought that marcel was upset by his behavior and felt remorse the next morning she found his hands and face covered with scratches and the kitten was dead suffocated in his bed a favorite pastime he had in the same period was to steal young birds from their nests poke their eyes out with a needle and delightedly watched them hurl themselves against the bars of a cage. His schoolmasters agreed that Marcel was extraordinarily intelligent, but strange, solitary, incorrigible, and unable to show sustained interest in his work. At age five, he could read like a child of ten. His exceptionally early development showed in other ways, too as when he was caught passing obscene pictures around the classroom or making indecent proposals to a male schoolmate. At eleven, he interrupted a history class on African civilization by firing a shot into the ceiling with a revolver stolen from his father. Once, he spent one recess period standing a classmate against a door and throwing knives into the frame around him with astonishing accuracy. His parents once consulted a doctor about his eccentricity and such physiological or mental abnormalities as convulsions, sleepwalking, and a tendency to wet his bed and trousers between ages ten and twelve. The medical man could only tell them that time and hope might cure what he could not. Petiot's mother died in 1912 when he was 15, and his brother Maurice was 5. The father accepted a job at the post office in the village of Joigny, some 24 kilometres away, and his two sons stayed with their aunt Henriette Bourdon in Auxerre. Before the end of the year, Marcel was thrown out of school for disciplinary reasons. He went to stay with his father at Joigny and was thrown out of school there, too. Returning to Auxerre, he was once again thrown out of school, this time for more than mere unruly behavior and over-excitation. Using a stick with glue on the end, Marcel, now seventeen, had stolen mail from a post box, possibly to cash money papers, or perhaps out of mere curiosity. A more sinister motive might have been to blackmail townsfolk who wrote of their indiscretions. He was eventually caught, and in February 1914 was charged with damaging public property and mail theft. French courts at that time, even as now, commonly recommended psychiatric examination of accused lawbreakers, particularly when there were any unusual circumstances, such as, in this case, the youth of the offender. On the 26th of March, 1914, a court-appointed psychiatrist found Marcel to be an abnormal youth, suffering from personal and hereditary problems, which limit to a large degree his responsibility for his acts. Another physician concurred on the 6th of May, adding that the only cure for what ailed Marcel would be one mainly oriented toward his, and I quote, adaptation to discipline and social life, end quote. Following these diagnoses, and abetted perhaps by his father's intervention with the postal authorities, charges against Marcel were dropped on the 14th of August because, according to the court judgment, and I quote, the accused appears to be mentally ill, Félix Pétillon was so upset by Marcel's repeated delinquencies and unrepentant nature that he wanted nothing further to do with his son. Pétillon was thus sent to Dijon to complete his schooling. Finished only the first part of his bachelor's degree examination before unspecified problems forced him to return to Oxach, where he was once again expelled from school. Finally, he received his degree from a special school in Paris on the 10th of July, 1915. Now, as the avid listener might have noticed, the years described are the same years as those of the outbreak of what was then known as the Great War, today more commonly known as World War I. Etienne, being a Frenchman, was by no means unaffected by this historic moment in time. He was inducted into the French Eighty-Ninth Infantry Regiment in January 1916, and was sent to the Western Front in November. He served with neither distinction nor dishonor until the 20th of May 1917. On that day, while bitterly fighting in the Aisne, hand-grenade shrapnel ripped open his left foot. He was evacuated to a military clinic in the Orléans Insane Asylum for treatment of this injury and a bronchial condition brought on by poison-gas attack. His wound healed well, but he began to exhibit symptoms of mental disorder and was sent to a series of rest-homes and clinics to convalesce. He returned briefly to his regiment, then was almost immediately sent back to a clinic. There he was involved in an obscure incident involving stolen blankets and was placed in the military prison at Orléans. Renewed indications of mental unbalance caused his transfer to the psychiatric unit at Fleury-le-Aubray, in the same region where a doctor diagnosed him as suffering from, and I quote, mental disequilibrium, neurostenia, Mental depression, melancholia, obsessions, and phobias, and concluded that Marcel Petillon could not be held legally responsible for his acts. After a month of treatment and another month's convalescent leave, Petillon was returned to the front in June nineteen eighteen. There, he had a nervous breakdown, fired a revolver at his foot and was transferred to a depot behind the lines. In July, he went into convulsions at the Dijon train station. He spent the afternoon unconscious in the railroad infirmary and was granted another three-week leave. In September, he joined the 91st Infantry Regiment at Charleville as a machine gunner. But was unable to accept discipline, complained of incessant headaches, and claimed to be in constant dread of another fit in March nineteen nineteen almost five months after the war was over, he spent two weeks at the psychiatric division of the Rennes Military Hospital. There, the medical director found him the victim of. Amnesia, mental unbalance, sleepwalking, severe depression, paranoia, and suicidal tendencies. He recommended his discharge from the army. This recommendation was examined by the Commission de Reform, which governs discharges and pensions. They approved, and on the fourth of July, nineteen nineteen, Petillon was released from the army
0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Slash serial killer. The case was reviewed in September 1920 and his disability rating increased to 100%. The examining psychiatrist, concluding that Petillon was suffering from severe depression, suicidal tendencies, hyper and utter inability to perform any physical or intellectual work recommended that the patient might be best off placed under continuous surveillance in a psychiatric hospital. Petion was twice more examined by psychiatrists. Both of these reviews upheld the earlier conclusions, with the added notations that Petion showed complete indifference about his future and had bite scars on his tongue. From bi monthly epileptic seizures. When the commissioned psychiatrist found Petion incapable of any work and suggested his placement in a mental hospital, Petion was indeed already at a mental hospital in the town of Evreux, 97 kilometres west of Paris, in the Jura. He was not there as a patient, however but as a medical student serving his internship and preparing a thesis on an incurable progressive nerve degeneration called Landry's Paralysis. Some newspapers later misunderstood their informants and wrote that Petillon had written his thesis on the infamous serial killer that my dear listeners might have heard me talk of before. Named henri Desirin Landrou truncated and accelerated medical programs designed for former soldiers enabled Petillon to complete his schooling in eight months and his internship in two years. He received his degree from the Faculté de Médecine de Paris on the 15th of December 1921. Petillon was proud of his new position. His friend at the time, named Nézondé, believed that he wanted it only for the power it conferred. The power of healing, the power over life and death, the prestige, the control over people who gave him their trust and confided their secrets. Félix Petillon was proud too and wrote to the son he had banished in disgrace years before. Marcel went to see him. He listened to his father's apologies and praise. He dined with him, and when dinner was over and Felix prepared to sit down to a long talk, Marcel rudely announced that he was expected elsewhere and walked out of the house. Armed with his Paris medical degree, Petillon moved to the town of Villeneuve-sur-Yon, an old historical village on the banks of the Yon River, built in 1165 as a royal residence for King Louis Seventh. Villeneuve was only 40 kilometers from Petillon's native Auxerre, and with a population of 4200 served only by two aging physicians. It appeared the ideal spot for an ambitious young doctor of twenty five to set up practice. He rented a small house on the Rue Carnot with three rooms and a garden, and spent several weeks distributing pamphlets he had printed up that announced his arrival. They read, and I quote Dr. Petillon is young, and only a young doctor Can keep up to date on the latest methods born of a progress which marches with giant strides. This is why intelligent patients have confidence in him. Dr. Petillon treats but does not exploit his patients. At first, This boastful flyer attracted only those patients already dissatisfied with the other two doctors, as well as hypochondriacs always eager for new treatments and a virgin air. But Petillon quickly began to lure away even the more devoted patients. He was a gentleman to the ladies, paternal to the children, and a sympathetic listener to the men. While maintaining his exalted position, he nonetheless made the people of the village feel he was just one of them. Patients without money were treated for a fraction of the cost or for free, and he was known to open his office on Sunday for those whose work prevented them from coming during the week, and to travel great distances late at night to treat sick children his treatments were successful and his tone reassuring. He seemed able to diagnose an ailment and write the necessary prescription even before the patient had a chance to describe his symptoms. According to later witnesses, he would typically say something like the following, and I quote, No, don't tell me. I know all about it. You have this, 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 and that. Take a bit of this, and you will feel better in no time. End quote. More often, Petillon would persuade his patients that there was really nothing wrong with them at all. Many of his patients were flattered by the interest Petillon took in their lives. Something about him drew out their confidence, and he enjoyed hearing about their social lives, their finances, their small worries in life. A patient would sometimes realize, after being ushered to the door with a prescription in his hand, that during the entire consultation he had spoken about nothing but his life, and had never actually mentioned his ailment. As we say here in Norway, hvis noe for forgått å være sant, så er det det. Directly translated, the saying is, if something seems too good to be true, it is. And so it was with our Dr. Petillon. It was not quite so self-sacrificing as it seemed. It was learned later that he enrolled virtually all of his patients in medical assistance without their knowledge, so that he was reimbursed by the state for those who did not pay and was paid twice for many of those who did. Although patients went to see him, in ever-increasing numbers, local pharmacists occasionally complained about his prescriptions, which all too frequently contained potent doses of narcotics. Once a pharmacist telephoned Pétillon to correct a prescription that called for a near-lethal dose of a dangerous drug. Pétillon replied, that since the pharmaceutical companies and druggists watered down the products, it was only by prescribing excessive amounts that he could compensate and obtain the required dose. Another pharmacist refused to fill a prescription for a child that would have killed an adult. When he complained to the doctor, Petiot replied, and I quote, What difference does it make to you anyway? Isn't it better to do away with this kid who's not doing anything in the world but pestering its mother? Still, not one of his patients seems to have died, and none complained. In his private life, Petion was taciturn and distant. The main feature of his personality seemed to be scorn. Scorn for people. SCORN FOR INSTITUTIONS, SCORN FOR SICKNESS, DANGER, LIFE, AND THE LAW. BENEATH HIS SEDUCTIVE CHARM AND PROFESSIONAL DEVOTION, THERE APPEARED TO BE NOTHING BUT COLD AMUSEMENT AND DETACHED INTEREST. A TURBULENT INNER LIFE THERE WAS, WHICH MADE HIM NERVOUS AND TENSE, AND SOMETIMES PLUNGED HIM INTO SUDDEN DESPAIR AND FITS OF WEEPING. The cause of these crises was never communicated to those around him. He did not smoke, did not drink, or frequent cafes. He had few friends and shared none of the simple problems, joys, and casual conversations that draw people together and form the tissue of daily life. When he did speak, his talk did not seem to emerge from amiability but from a desire to manipulate people. He is reported to have said to his friend the following, and I quote, To succeed in life, one must have a fortune or a powerful position. One must want to dominate those who might cause one problems and impose one's will on them. End quote. For a man in his position... Petillon lived very modestly, so modestly, in fact, that local townspeople found it inappropriate. An old woman came to clean house and prepare his meals. His clothes were not in the latest style, except for his neckties, in which he took some pride. Besides being poorly cut, his suits were often covered with grease stains. He made his own automobile repairs, and never troubled to change before burying himself in the engine or sliding under the car. His light yellow sports car was his only luxury, and also the greatest danger to the local townspeople. He would drive without headlights, and over several years caused dozens of accidents, and though the car gradually lost bumpers, mudguards, paint, and all respectability, Petillon himself was, miraculously, never injured. Mostly, Petillon kept to himself when not working. He read voraciously, generally police stories and pulp literature, which he would devour at a rate of three hundred pages an hour, reading a page at a time and fixing it so firmly in his memory that he could quote long extracts of unbelievable tripe, he went out a little, and then mostly at night. He could see well in the darkness, he was able to pick up a pin in near total obscurity, and often walked the streets for hours long after the lights were out and the village asleep. He seemed born of the night. It was said, and his personality changed when he plunged into his element. He was more alive his movements supple and feline, his carriage different, his face more relaxed, his smile more frank and open. It hardly seemed that he slept at all. His peculiarities conspired to make people uneasy at the same time that they did trust him. Though his style of living was far from lavish and he scarcely needed money, Petion displayed an acquisitive streak, a need to accumulate and possess that would grow with the years. As with many serial killers, he had a great desire to possess and own things. He was a kleptomaniac and frequently took something besides himself when he left the house after a visit. Petillon once told his friend, Nézondé, he always searched his brother's pockets at the door before bidding him farewell. The items the doctor stole were never very expensive or important, and the village people excused or overlooked his quirk. In 1926... A far more sinister and serious suspicion was aroused regarding Petion. One of Petion's patients was an aged woman, a Madame Flory, who had a beautiful 26 year old housekeeper named Louise, or Louisette, Delavaux. When Madame Flory made an extended visit to Paris, Louisette decided to stay behind. A few days later, the people of Villeneuve were surprised to discover that Pétillon had dismissed his old housekeeper and Louisette had moved in. Ostensibly, she was employed only as a cook and housekeeper, but soon it was common knowledge that she had also become Pétillon's lover. This was a surprising change for Pétillon who had never previously shown much interest in any of the women who lavished their attention on the eligible young bachelor. Soon after Louisette moved in, the house next door to the Fleury home was burglarized, and several days later the Fleury house itself was robbed and set on fire to cover the traces of the burglary. In light of later events, these incidents would seem significant. For several months, the life of Petillon went on more happily than anyone would have suspected, and his friend Nesondet noticed that Petillon for once seemed calm and relaxed. The only problem was that Louis seemed to be gaining weight, and gossips murmured that she was pregnant. Then, on the Monday after Pentecost, in mid-May, Louisette disappeared. Several days later, while attending a funeral in the village, Petion asked the local gendarme, that's police officer, if the people of Villeneuve were not concerned about Louisette's departure. His manner of asking was so odd that the officer mentioned the incident to his chief. Someone then reported he had recently seen Petion loading a large trunk into his car. A similar trunk, containing a decapitated and unidentifiable young female corpse, was found floating in the river not long afterward. Louisette was a working class woman, and this being France in the 1920s, no significant police effort was made in solving her disappearance. The corpse in the river was never positively identified, and the brief police search for Louisette ended without any official suspicion cast on the respectable Dr. Petillon. Trusted friend of Petillon, René Nézondé, fended off unpleasant rumours from local townspeople. He stated he had met Petillon on the street after Louisette's disappearance. He was weeping in a state of utmost misery, bemoaning the fact that Louisette had abandoned him. Throughout lunch, Petillon stared straight ahead, his hands trembled, and he barely spoke as he seemed to search for some kind of solution to his woeful state. Suddenly, he appeared to find it. He immediately calmed down, poured himself a drink, and announced cheerfully to Nezondé, and I quote, I think I will get involved in politics. End quote.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: And with that, we come to the end of part one of this serialized expose of Dr. Marcel Petillon. I hope this episode has been to your liking. Next episode, number 145 in number, will continue his saga. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit, theskpodcast. Thank you, good night, and good luck.